of a round shield, the black and yellow outline of a bat on the evening sky, or the flash of red like a speeding bullet across the air. We Americans have an obsession with superheroes, don't we? The last decade alone has witnessed more films about villains and heroes than I can even have time to watch. I assume it's the same with you. A cascade of spin-offs. I believe the most recent one, the newest one, is Ant-Man. I have never heard of Ant-Man before, but it shows the depths to which we have to go to drag and create new heroes for ourselves, doesn't it? We need someone super, we think, to shield us, to protect us, to save us, don't we? Some of you here this morning may have a very similar view of Jesus Christ. Isn't he the superman who has come from above to rescue us with a flick of his fingers in the blink of an eye? That's what makes me a Christian, we can think. Jesus is our hero, mighty, powerful, unable to lose, ultimate good, defeating the evil foes and enemies of this world. Today, today we'll see a slightly different picture of the protagonist, a different portrayal of Jesus than we might be used to. And it's one, I argue and I believe, that gives you, that gives me, dear Christians, a more plentiful, a longer lasting, a more richly edifying resource for loving your Lord and for warring against sin, against the flesh, and against the devil himself. It's with that in mind that we turn to what may be a familiar passage of Scripture, the temptation of Jesus by the devil, found in the Gospel according to Luke. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me there. This is indeed the active and living and sharp and double-edged sword of the word of God. Therefore, it does not go out void. Please pay careful attention to it and receive it with faith and love. Luke and the Lord write these words. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, 
You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let us therefore go before our Lord and ask his blessing upon his word. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, most merciful and most exalted, we come to you as your people who have heard words all this week, words that we are tempted to believe, words maybe about love, words about justice, words that tell us who we are. And we have indeed most likely succumbed to those words. We have told ourselves words, oh Lord. But we come here now to hear a word that is outside of our own minds, a word that is from your lips. Grace is poured upon the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word incarnate. We pray that you would deliver to us by your spirit that powerful word and that it would not hit our ears and bounce off, but that our eyes will be open, our ears will be clear, our minds would be warmed and enlightened by the spirit of power to understand more of your majesty, more of your love and your justice, that we may be comforted indeed, that we may be convicted and disciplined as needed that we may be impelled to love you more. We ask your blessing, therefore, upon this text, upon these words, that they do not come void, but they come in power and in majesty. We ask this according to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who, though slain, yet stands on the throne all of God's people said, Amen. Here, in the dust and the grime of the desert wilderness, Jesus of Nazareth, the Jew, faces questions that continue, that will continue to dog him all the way to the cross. In Luke 4, he faces the first, the initial assaults of the enemy. Questions such as, what kind of Messiah will he be? The Jews at this time, of course, expect the Messiah. What kind of Messiah is this? What kind of a son of God is he? 
going to be? How human is Jesus? Indeed, he will also face questions that are not just unique to him, but impact our lives, questions that we face. How can we live in the scorching heat of this present evil age when our own bodies wither away? When our outer man is fading day by day, when our friends tell us we'll take the easy way out, when Satan and sin take us out to the back alleys and offer us the lure of power, when satisfaction is a thrill away, when we're tempted to doubt. In the passage before us, Jesus will seek and destroy three enemies that you and I face. First, He will vanquish the desert. Second, he will assault and attack the devil himself. Finally, he will conquer indeed that most insidious of foes, doubt. Desert, physical pain. Devil, spiritual foe. Doubt, the enemy of faith. Desert, devil, doubt. And at the start of his ministry, however, Jesus faces this bone-chilling question that calls into doubt the entire plan of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. How will he be a son of the Father? But before we get into the specifics of this chapter, of these temptations, we have to take a step back. It's one of the negatives about coming here once and not going through a series. I have to do this. I apologize. But it's important for us to grasp the context of this passage. What has just happened to Jesus? Because to make an obvious but an overlooked point, you might be aware of this, the fourth chapter of Luke comes after the third chapter of Luke. Right? And in this third chapter, we see two things about Jesus, two descriptions of Jesus, of who he is, that directly impinge upon and impact the combat, the duel between son and devil. First, first we see, look with me briefly at Luke 3, verses 21 to 22. We see first that Jesus is baptized. Luke writes these words, When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. A familiar text to perhaps many of us. But what is happening here? That's the question. And here, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united, come together in one glorious picture of a synchronized, a unified plan of salvation, a mission of redemption. The Son who is loved by the Father, who is filled for the Spirit, is therefore equipped for the task of living and loving and dying and saving and rising and obeying the command to love God above all else and to love his neighbor as himself. The baptism of Jesus shows us, therefore, that Jesus is commissioned for the redemption, for the hard work 
of ministry. You've been Christian. Do you know that Christianity is not a simple or an easy thing to do over the course of a life? How much more difficult, of course, is it for the work of perfection to be accomplished in human flesh? The first, chap- the first verse of chapter 4 reinforces this idea that Jesus is the champion, the warrior, equipped and ready with the Spirit. Satan is not in total control of these temptations. You might think that, right? But even these temptations occur because of the design and the plan of the Father. Look at verse 1 here of chapter 4. Jesus is what? He's full of the Holy Spirit. He returns from the Jordan. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You see, all of this comes about because of the combined, unified plan of the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit. That's the first thing we have to see from chapter 3. But second, as important, beginning in Luke 23 and continuing for 15 verses, 3.23 that is, and for 15 verses we see a long, skippable genealogy, right? Filled with names, some difficult some familiar, some unknown. And it's squished between these two central events in Luke's gospel, isn't it? Baptism, temptation. If you're writing an action-filled, dramatic narrative, if you're filming a movie, why would you spend 15 verses on names? That's not the way to pack the crowds. But you see, of course, Luke is no fool. There's a purpose, there's a reason behind this. And the answer is found in the very last verse of chapter 3. Luke's genealogy, of course, is the opposite of Matthew's, which begins and then moves chronologically forward. Luke's genealogy moves backwards. It ends in verse 38, where Jesus is pushed all the way back into time as the son of Enos the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You see, when Jesus goes into the wilderness to fight Satan, not only is he equipped for battle with the Spirit and a plan, not only has he gone through the waters as Israel went through the Red Sea, not only has he been blessed by the Father, but he is going as the second Adam. This is not simply a test of Jesus' loyalty, his obedience to the Father. It is that, but it's more than that. It's not just a test of what kind of son he will be. You see, the temptations of Christ are a test of us as well because he is fighting on your behalf. As Adam was in the garden, so Christ now is in the wilderness. He is waging war as the promised seed of the woman against Satan for you, dear Christian. You have to grasp that. If you don't, you you will misunderstand what happens here. Because see, the stakes are high. If Jesus fails at these temptations, if he cannot pass through the wilderness, how will he succeed at the greater test to come? The 
cross. He has no hope if he fails here. If the devil can win here, the intrusion of the incarnate word into our world, taking on flesh and blood, would be for naught, would be dead on arrival. And furthermore, this Jew from Nazareth is the one whom God has set his mark on, has called his beloved son, has given the Spirit, not like to us in part, but without measure. All the chips are in the center of the pot. God, if Jesus, filled with the Spirit, cannot defeat Satan here, who can? Who can? That's the question that Luke 4 brings to us. Compare just for a moment, by the way, to see how difficult this is, the temptation of Adam in the garden with the temptation of Christ here. Adam was in paradise. Christ is east of Eden in the wilderness. Adam could eat of all the trees except for one. Christ has no food, no water. It's a desert. Adam even had a suitable partner, Eve. He had someone to rely upon. Jesus is alone. The deck is stacked deliberately against our Lord. And so we see in verse 2, something that might seem a little bit strange occurs. Look here with me. Not only is he led by the Spirit into the wilderness, but more than that, he's led for 40 days. And Luke writes, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Why does Christ take 40 days to fast? 40 days in the desert. This is not a, this is not a diet plan, just so we're clear about that. Um, he fasts for 40 days, of course, because he is not just the second Adam. He is also the second, the new Israel because he is echoing, he is reworking, he is fixing what the people of God have failed at all their lives. Moses, for instance, the great leader of the people of God, is said in Deuteronomy 9, 9, to have fasted for 40 days. The people of Israel, famously, if we know anything about the Old Test, we know that in Exodus 16.35, they ate manna for how long? Forty years, of course. Each day, Jesus spends fasting in the desert. In other words, symbolizes a year the Israelites were wandering. If you want an explicit link, Numbers 14.34. But the major point here is, Jesus fasts in order to prepare himself for the conflict, for combat with the evil one. Israel was wandering. Israel was unprepared. The hyperlinks between Jesus and Israel are even more clear when we examine these specific temptations. Have you wondered ever, as you read through this text, why these three temptations? Why are these picked out? Why does Satan use these temptations? The answer is actually not a difficult one. Um... Why, why bread from stones? That's the classic cry of Israel in the desert for food, for physical nourishment. Why the lure of false worship? Even if it seems like you get power, you get authority, 
another common failure in Israel's worship from day one, from the golden calf all the way through the false prophets of Baal and Asherah. Finally, the third temptation, testing the Lord your God, testing his protection, classic Israelite blunder. You'll note, of course, that as we'll get into this, Jesus answers all of these challenges by quoting from specifically Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy 8, a passage from the Old Testament which refers to the wilderness trials of the Israelites. What's the upshot of all this? That's the background. That's the context. The upshot of all this is, is here. In other words, Christ is the Israelite in whom there is no sin. He represents Israel on the one hand. He is the better Adam. In this battle with Satan, he must win or else all history is nothing more than a long litany of sadness, depravity, and death. Sin will have the victory if Christ does not. Maybe you sit here and you think, well, I mean, if I'd been in the garden, I would have done better than Adam. Why am I to blame for his problems? Why do we need a champion in Jesus. No, my friend, you would have done the exact same thing, if not quicker, right? Enter Jesus, the one who must fight for you. The cost is therefore cosmic. The stakes are galactic. The game is for all the marbles. Let's move then into the first temptation. Jesus versus desert. After fasting for 40 days, our Lord is understandably hungry, famished, tired, and weak. It's in this condition that the devil begins his assault. Look at verse 3 with me. The devil says to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. The opening move in Satan's game is to attack the immediate physical pain of the son. The devil starts at, at this level. He appeals to the weakness of the flesh and blood that Jesus has taken on. Give Satan credit here, please. The timing is perfect. Jesus has not yet cast out a demon. He's not preached. He's not healed the sick. He is alone. He is hungry in the desert. Surely it's okay for Christ to expect a little comfort. He's been fasting for 40 days, right? Certainly, he can satiate the basic needs of his body. You see, Satan is, as always, trying to poison his mind, whispering as he did to Adam, can you really trust the Father? He doesn't know what's best. He won't provide for you. Be self-reliant. Be free. Rely and sustain yourself. The question here is not so much, will Jesus do a miracle? The question is much more, will Jesus provide for himself or will he trust the Father? What kind of a son will he be is the question. And here, we do have to get a little bit into a, a naughty question for the moment that may bother some of us. Jesus is the Word, the second person of the Trinity, the one who is filled with the Spirit, who is sinless, who is perfect. 
God cannot be tempted, James 1 tells us. And therefore, the question we might have, the question we need to answer here, in these temptations, is Jesus actually tempted? Or are these just a check on a list that Messiah has to complete? For us, of course, fallen Adam, this is the most pertinent question. If Jesus was not tempted, how can he be an appropriate and a fit one to understand our troubles, our falls, our stumbles, our giving in the temptation? If he is not even tempted, actually, truly, can you really go to him in confidence? For all we know, he could be a far-off God like Zeus, appearing as if a human, but not actually one who is closer than a brother, right? Can we indeed pray to our elder brother? It's a difficult question if it were not for the rest of the testimony of, the, of Scripture. As the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 2, 14 to 18, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. For because, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. As one, one writer notes, the whole point of the temptations of Jesus Christ is that they were addressed to his completely temptable human nature, not his untemptable divine nature. Examine with me for a moment each of these temptations. Where is the sin? Where is the error? In each of these. Is it sinful for Jesus to want bread? No. Is it wrong for the king of kings to desire power and authority over all the kings and princes of the earth? No. Is it wrong for the son to be protected by angels from stumbling? No. Taken separately, none of these temptations is illegitimate. So then, where's the temptation? The problem is, the problem comes in who's offering them, and the way they're being offered. They are given by the devil. That's usually not a good sign, in case you're wondering. And his lure, the, the, sum, the summary of these temptations, the way they tempt Jesus is this. The lure of the tempter is to make Jesus desire good things, proper wants, but at the wrong time and in the wrong way to make him appear as a son who is disloyal to the father's mission. But what we see here in the first temptation at verse 4, Jesus answers the devil saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, Jesus, in fighting the desert, in fighting the flesh, does not lower himself to use his messianic anointing to satisfy his own needs, but rather he submits himself to his Father, the one who gives us the prayer that includes, give us this day our daily bread. 
also knows that it is written, man does not live by bread alone. And with that, Jesus defeats in the first duel, the first trial, the desert. But see how sinister the tempter is when it comes to the second trial where he faces up against the temptation to worship Satan himself, Jesus versus devil. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Note that we'll stop there for the moment. Note that Satan here mixes, as usual, some of the truth with some of error. He mixes the truth with the marketing techniques, the lies of the worst used car salesmen among us. As Ephesians 2, 2 does note, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of this world. He has lured the people of this age to give him honor. And so he begins with a half-truth. Notice that he starts here with the bait. He doesn't give you the fine print until the end. But he offers the bait of power and authority only, verse 7, by the way, if you worship me, it'll all be yours. Although the honor, again, of all rulers is due to Christ alone as the King of Kings, this is a real temptation We might not think that at first, but the temptation for Christ here is to have the glory, the victory, the authority without the cross. It's a temptation for comfort and crown without pain and death. Wouldn't it be easier, even we might think, to conquer the difficulties of, let's say, poverty, Injustice, disease in this world, the effects of the fall. If Apple and IBM and Walmart and all the governments of the world pooled their resources under one head into the battle against evil. You see, this is, this is part of the hook that Satan uses. Jesus, just think of all the good you could do. Just, by the way, bow the knee to me. You can have what you want. You can have these humans these daughters of Eve, sons of Adam. Take them all. No cross, no years of difficult ministry, no years of dealing with ignorant, foolish disciples who will betray you, no mockery from the priest, no questions from the masses, no need for you to bear the hurt and the shame of Calvary. It's a temptation, of course, that you and I should resonate with pretty well. How often do you base your decisions on what is easier? what is safer, what involves a little bit less work, a little bit less awkwardness with awkward people, unpleasant conflict with friends or spouses or children. It's best we say to ourselves and we hear, just be a safe Christian. Hold any countercultural, any radical demands of Jesus at arm's length. Don't lose any of your American privileges or rights. We can still maintain the trinity of power, status, and Jesus, right? 
That's the bait the tempter provides. But as always, Satan and sin over-promise and under-deliver. See how Jesus answers. Note very carefully here in verse 8 how Jesus answers the assaults of the evil one. Did he pull a miracle out of his pocket? No. Did he throw his weight around and appeal to the Father and say, come and help me right now? No. Does he display some secret superpower that no one else has? No. In the midst of temptation, he doesn't cheat. Jesus instead has two weapons, right? He is full and equipped with the spirit on the one hand. He allies that spirit of truth with the word of God. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This, this isn't the movies. We don't see superpowers or the force being used. The weapons of Jesus are the living and active word and the life-giving spirit. Christian, these are your weapons too. Jesus doesn't have different weapons than you do in the battle against sin. You face similar conflict every hour when the depth of your own depravity or the pains and pains of economic or physical or mental agony ripple through your mind, rip through your body. When the mocking cries of the evil run rattle around in your head. And in all these trials, in all these temptations, the Father and the Son and the Spirit stand with you. Are those the weapons you use? Are you confident, able to stand firm? Remind yourselves that you are united to the Son, the one who has gone through temptation. Prepare yourself for battle, dear Christian whether with internal fears and doubts or external foes, store up the word in your minds and hearts. Learn of Jesus. Be taught of him that you may love him. Follow his lead, for he is indeed the head over all his church. As the Apostle Paul writes, a very familiar text to some of us, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Is that what you go to in times of trial? Or are you constantly searching for any other seemingly more reliable tool they will fail. They will all fail. And yet Christ himself here does not fail. He succeeds, fights off the second temptation. But there's one last trial. Jesus, indeed, must fight off doubt itself. For the third 
and file temptation. The devil increases the pressure. Here in verses 10 and 11, he sees how Scripture has been used by Jesus. And he says, well, I might as well use some Scripture too. Maybe that will convince him. Maybe I can persuade him on his own field. He quotes from Psalm 91 as we sung earlier, verses 11 and 12. Look here at verse 10 and 11 from this chapter. The devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, the devil's not foolish entirely. He can be cunning. And so he appeals to a verse out of context, right? This is the usual tactic, even in our day, even in many churches, to select a verse or a story from the Bible that reinforces our self-centered, our self-centered wants and desires and conceits. Note here, learn here, dear Christian, that simply reciting and memorizing Scripture is not enough. Even the demons know, of course, that Jesus is Lord. Even Satan here can recite Scripture. Though we are called to store up the word in our hearts, and though that word does not return void, and therefore it's beneficial to memorize the word, we see here that the tempter uses it as well. Just using biblical words or phrases does not make you a Christian. In your daily lives, at work, at school, at play, the word cannot simply be used as a rote formula, a magical incantation, as we can say, praise the Lord, or blessings without thinking. But it must be given pride of place in your heart, in your life, in your thoughts. You must meditate upon, you must pray the word, you must sing the word. You must study and understand the word himself, Jesus Christ, that he spent the necessary time as he increased in stature, as he increased in wisdom. He spent the necessary time in his human nature to learn, to be taught the intricacies of scripture. Where is he when his parents can't find him? At the temple, talking about the Old Testament, studying and learning of the word of God. Can you say that yourself? Whether you accept Jesus, whether you reject Jesus, have you spent the time in the trenches of the Bible? Do you know what you're talking about? Are you quoting scripture like Satan without seeing the broader connections? Or are you quoting scripture like Jesus? with a single-eyed focus on the mission of the Father and His will. This is how you are to use the word and fight off temptation by following Christ's example. When Jesus fights off here, what He fights off here is the temptation to test the Lord. Satan is trying to convince the Son of God. Well, you know, if you are a son... God will protect his own. The Father will not let you come to harm. 
if you are the Son of God, don't worry. You'll be fine. Just jump off the temple and just make sure, just really make certain, Jesus, that the Father's there for you. Right? It's an appeal, in other words, an attack against the close-knit relations between Father and Son, the very heart of all these temptations. Satan wants to cut that bond. He wants to sow doubt in Jesus' mind. Now, of course, Christ realizes that deliberately jumping off the temple and demanding that the Father rescue him would violate the command to test God. See here in verse 12, his reply from Deuteronomy 6. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, Satan makes a foolish mistake here, doesn't he? He's speaking to one who is already equipped and provided with the Holy Spirit. Why would Jesus need angels if he already has the filling and the power of the Spirit? Why would he need certainty if he's already been equipped? And yet behind all this again is the personal question of protection. Will the Father protect? Will the Father provide for the Son in the future, in the midst of pain and agony and the death and the judgment upon the cross? Is Jesus, in other words, is what these temptations are all about, is Jesus the appropriate person for the mission? Can he trust the Lord without putting him to the test? He's facing the personal, the existential crisis that you and I face. Doubt. We understand the predicament, don't we? We want proof. We want certainty and assurance that the Lord of heaven and earth will sustain us in this earthly pilgrimage through trials, that he will give us victory over disease and pain that we carry around, that he will protect us from Satan, from sin, from our enemies. But the demand for visible proof, the asking for a sign, is a miss placed desire, a flashing marker that points to the lack, our lack of trust in Christ. Where then, in closing, where then can we look? Where then can we look? We look in all these temptations and all of our struggles to the final hours of Jesus' earthly existence it is here the Lord shows us that our desires to test him, our lack of trust, our fear of the devil are askew. We're looking at the wrong place for assurance. We have a more beautiful, a more powerful seal of God's protection than anything we can see. For on the night that our Lord was betrayed, in the moments of torture, utter humiliation in the presence of enemies foreign and domestic, physical and spiritual. The Son of God needed protection from the Father and he deserved it for his was the only faithful life ever given in utter full-orbed, total obedience to the will and the mission of his Father in heaven. He had passed these temptations 
this first battle. He was certified. He was qualified to minister, to save, to love God and love neighbor. He was the better Israel. He was the second Adam. But on that night, on the day of his crucifixion, he did not suit up. He did not grab a weapon. He did not call a lawyer. He went unprotected. No bulletproof vest for the suffering servant in the hour, in his hour of greatest agony. Angels did not appear. Angels and legions of angels were not commanded and called down to save Jesus. They did not bear him up on their hands for the rock of our salvation was indeed crushed against the stones of Golgotha. There was no bat signal. There was no dashing into a phone booth. There was no last second Hail Mary to win the game. Christ fell into the depths of hell, was laid under the wrath of God. Satan, the evil villain, appears to have triumphed. How, how can this be good news? For you. How can the man who had turned aside the tempter's power once submit to it in round two? For you see, behind all this, of course, is the Father's plan. The Word made flesh has tasted suffering and death, unshielded from the darts of the evil one, taking on our corruption taking on our guilt, our liability to sin, our follies, our frailties, our succumbing to temptations in order to defeat sin and Satan and death itself by death, by weakness, by frailty, so that you, his people, if you are his, would not be overwhelmed in the hour of your greatest need. You would not be destroyed by the temptations of the evil one. Is that your hope? Is that what you look to? Is that your trust that he gave up his own life, that he submitted to the evil one, that he lost, so that you indeed might have victory? And we therefore trust and rely upon the great high priest who has passed through the heavens who disarmed the rulers and the authorities and the evil one and put them to open shame through his cursed death on the tree. May we now, dear Christians, with confidence and boldness consider him, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that we may not grow weary for we know that we do indeed have an advocate in our time of need who has suffered temptation like us. He is not far off. Therefore, you may draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. May the Lord bless his word to us this very hour. Let us go before that throne of grace now, for we are in a time of need. Let us pray.